We are still in the uh, lengthy Dhamma talk called Kandanya Knows, and uh, I was mentioning uh, yesterday how um, there was a, a little sutta about uh, Kand- uh, Anya Kandanya having been away from uh, the Buddha for many, many years, and then when he came back to visit, uh, a, um, I thought I might read that out. It's in the Vangisa uh, section, the connected discourses related to Vangisa. Vangisa was a uh, notable poet and was um, uh, very regularly creating spontaneous verses uh, for particular occasions. So this is uh, Sutta number 9 in the Vangisa Sangyutta. On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Then the Venerable Anya Kandanya, after a very long absence, approached the Blessed One, prostrated himself with his head at the Blessed One's feet, kissed the Blessed One's feet, stroked them with his hands, and announced his name thus, I am Kandanya, Blessed One, I am Kandanya, Fortunate One. Then it occurred to the Venerable Vangisa, this Venerable Anya Kandanya, after a very long absence, has approached the Blessed One and kisses the Blessed One's feet, strokes them with his hands, and announces his name, Let me extol the Venerable Anya Kandanya in the Blessed One's presence with suitable verses. Then the Venerable Vangisa rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and raising his joined hands in reverential salutation towards the Blessed One, said to him, An inspiration has come to me, Blessed One. An inspiration has come to me, Fortunate One. Then express your inspiration, Vangisa. Which is what the Buddha usually said when Vangisa was struck by the, the muse to create. Then the Venerable Vangisa extolled the Venerable Anyakananya in the Blessed One's presence with suitable verses. And these are the, the three verses he, he, uh, he spontaneously creates. Enlightened in seclusion to the Buddha, the elder Kandanya of strong endeavor is one who gains pleasant dwellings, one who often gains the seclusions. Whatever may be attained by a disciple who practices the Master's teaching, all that has been attained by him one who trained diligently. Of great might, a triple-knowledge man, skilled in the course of others' minds, Kandanya, a true heir of the Buddha, pays homage at the teacher's feet. And that um, passage about the uh, seclusions, um, that's referring to uh, the Viveka's the three different kinds of seclusion, kaya viveka, physical seclusion, jitta viveka, uh, mental seclusion, and upadi viveka, um, the seclusion from the defilements. And also it has a little note about this unusual word um, that is used in Vangisa's verse, buddhanu buddho, enlightened in succession to the Buddha. uh, So the commentary goes, uh, First the teacher awakened to the Four Noble Truths, and after him the Eld Kandanya awakened to them. The pleasant dwellings, Sukha-vihara, are the pleasant dwellings in this present life, i.e. the jhanas and fruition attainment. The seclusions, viveka, are the three seclusions, uh, kaya-viveka, citta-viveka, and upadi-viveka, of body through physical solitude, of mind through jhana and seclusion from the acquisitions, or the basis of existence, by destruction of all defilements. 
Buddhanu Buddha Savaka is used in a more general sense in a later passage. So I just thought I'd share that with you, a uh, little uh, incident um, and uh, a- occasion where you have the elder Kandanya coming back to see the Buddha and then Vangisa, uh, as he often did, spontaneously versifying on account of that. So then to continue with the um, talk of Lumpur Cha. Excuse me, John. Yes. Um, I, I wonder if you can indulge me a, a second. Um, I've really, for a long time, wondered about this squirrel's sanctuary. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on with um, that place? Um, is it a place where people, they, they used to feed the squirrels or something? Well, a good question. Um, the ba- I've been to the Velovana, the bamboo grove. I imagine it was just a corner of the bamboo grove where the squirrels like to live. Um, the, uh, it could be that someone liked to feed them. There was one of the the, um, the very dedicated laymen at uh, Wat Pananachat. Every day he used to take little blobs of sticky rice and put them out on the branches of the trees around and sort of spaced apart so that a, a number of squirrels could all eat at the same time. And he was very popular with the squirrels, so that uh, Wat Pananachat was a squirrel's sanctuary until uh, poor Som was a bit too decrepit to be able to come in every day. But uh, yeah, he was notable to be putting out the little lumps of sticky rice on the branches so the squirrels could help themselves. In, in northeast Thailand, everyone eats sticky rice. The dogs, the squirrels, <laughs> kind of, sticky rice is kind of it. That's the, uh, the basis of life in, in uh, the area. Yeah, there's, um, the, you get these names of um, the... Um, there's Sumsumaragira, the base of Kala Grove. That's like the crocodile haunt. So people used to live where the crocodiles were? Uh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, things get, acquire names over time. And sometimes the name sticks and the, the, and the, the, the source of the name has, 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 has changed. Or the reason why the name arrived there has long since gone. Like Petersfield. Who was Peter? But his name is there on the town, you know, close to Chithurst. Petersfield. Well, it's Petersfield. Well, who was Peter? Oh. <laughs> Lost to history. So why it got called the Squirrel's Sanctuary? Uh, further, further investigation can be carried out, but uh, <laughs> there are probably stories that, that uh, go into it, but um, I know no more than that. There is a lot of bamboo in the bamboo grove still. That, uh, that carries on. Okay. And so uh, at the end of or where we got to yesterday, Lumpacha was using the image of water rolling off a lotus leaf, that the afflictions of the water, the mind of the practitioner, is the lotus leaf. They contact each other. The lotus doesn't need to avoid the water, but they remain separate. The mind of the yogin is like this. It does not flee or escape to anywhere. When good comes, it's aware. When bad comes, it's aware. When there is happiness or suffering, like or dislike, the mind is aware. It's aware of everything that occurs. But it merely recognizes these states. They cannot penetrate the mind, like the water doesn't penetrate the leaf of the the lotus flower. This means there is no grasping and no attachment to things. 
then to continue. In Dharma language, it is spoken of as equanimity, that kind of invulnerability of the leaf, the, the way the leaf doesn't soak up the water. In Dharma language, it is spoken of as equanimity, keeping the mind balanced and neutral. In ordinary speech, we call it recognition, being informed or notified of what's going on. There's no involvement or taking sides, just as when we meet someone and he tells us about something, we merely take note of what he has to say. We don't necessarily believe anything, we merely take note. This kind of attitude must be maintained continuously because these things exist in this world. The Buddha was enlightened in the world. He taught in the world. He examined the facts of the world. If he'd not examined and come to understand the world, when he met with the world, he wouldn't have been able to transcend it. After his enlightenment, the world was still there as before. For example, there was still praise. There was still criticism. There was still material gain, rank, happiness and suffering. If none of these things existed, there would be no basis for enlightenment because they are the very opposite of enlightenment. When the Buddha was enlightened, he awakened to the truth of these worldly dharmas that deceive and obscure the minds of human beings. Gain and loss, rank and disrepute, happiness and suffering, praise and blame. They belong to the world. If the minds of people follow after these things and fall under their sway, that is called worldliness. These eight dharmas destroy the eightfold path. Whenever they increase, the path vanishes. When they occupy and fill the heart, there will be no opportunity for walking the path that makes an end to suffering. There is only the world flooding the heart and keeping it in a state of turmoil, anxiety and distress. There are a couple of uh, significant points there. That... Um, that um, Another image that Lumpo Cha used about uh, in relationship to, to this is, uh, along with the lotus leaf and water, is oil and water. And uh, he would say it's, um, that the mind is like a, a bottle with oil and water in it, and that because of our general state of agitation and attachment and uh, say entanglement, then it's like the bottle being sha- uh, shaken, so that then it all seems like one liquid. But if you if you put the bottle down, then the the oil and the water naturally separate because they are immiscible. They, they, they can't mix with each other. He said this is like the, uh, the objects of mind and the, uh, the quality of awareness itself. If you just put the bottle down, and put the bottle of our life, if you just put it down, then the awareness and the objects of awareness separate out. But because we keep shaking the bottle, then it all uh, gets uh, mixed up together. So then the mind assumes, I think, I feel, I'm going, I'm coming, I, I have, I don't have, and and uh, those habits of identification and entanglement attachment uh, get sustained. But if we put the bottle down, uh, then the, the awareness and the objects of awareness naturally separate out from each other. Then talking about um, uh, using ordinary language to, to talk about that sense of um, not taking sides, just as when we meet someone and he tells us about something, we merely take note of what he has to say we don't necessarily believe anything, we merely take note. And you don't, I would say, don't disbelieve anything either. <laughs> this is very important in community life when someone says, oh, you know, uh, this just happened. You say, oh, really? And then rather than assuming that they're, they're giving you the whole story, they're to recognize, well, they're giving me their impression of the story. <laughs> they're maybe trying to be straightforward and honest, but maybe that isn't the whole of the picture. 
And so that uh, particularly important in community life is then checking to see, well, uh, what's, uh, what are the other things playing in, into that picture? Okay, how does uh, the other person who is working there, how do they, how do they see it? Or um, so uh, what happened uh, last week and, and uh, what are the, uh, the other say, factors that, that play into the picture? So that uh, to just to hear what somebody says and to believe it uh, completely and take it as the whole story, almost invariably that leads to dukkha of various kinds. <laughs> Not because people are being dishonest or, or deliberately biased, but because often we are we're seeing things from a certain perspective and we're not uh, aware that we're giving a, a partial view or a, a, a story that's uh, slanted from a particular perspective. Or we, we don't realize we're making assumptions about where someone is coming from, that we might think that they're very, that they are very upset or they're very irritated, uh, very anxious. Uh, it's like, uh, if there's any uh, Italians here, so <laughs> when the first time Lumpur Sumedha went to Italy, uh, he got the impression that uh, people were very upset <coughs> and, and angry, and, uh, and he, he was quite anxious. He felt, oh dear, you know, people are really... Uh, re- very reactive, and then it was made clear to him by the uh, the Italian monks. No, no, no. This is we were in Italy, Lumpur. It's <laughs> they're just having a. Co- it's like saying good morning. You know, nice nice weather today. That they they move their arms around a lot and speak in a, in a, in a loud voice. And the people aren't upset or, or uptight. It's just this is how how we communicate here. So uh, he talked about that a lot when he came, when uh, when he came back. I think it was about eighty seven or eighty eight. Was the first time he went over there. But he referred to that quite often, so that he assumed, oh my goodness, they're really upset. Said, no, 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 it's just saying good morning. <laughs> so, uh, g- getting the whole picture and not making assumptions is extremely important. And then Lumpur goes into what are called the eight worldly dhammas, uh, the Lokya dhammas, though praise and criticism, gain and loss, happiness and suffering, and, and fame and disrepute. These are the eight uh, worldly, uh, worldly dhammas, things that cause a great deal of um, the, uh, the uh, uh, motivation for action, the way that we relate to the world, the things that we value, the things that uh, people chase after or run away from, um, try to um, uh, so build their lives around. Uh, and so these, uh, as he points out, these are a kind of counterpoint to the Eightfold Path. So as long as the mind is taken up with um, praise and criticism, material gain and loss, uh, happiness and suffering, and um, fame and disrepute. Um, then, if that's your value system, then you're you're creating a lot of um, causes for distress and difficulty and, and conflict within yourself. And so, the the eightfold path is, and he he pursues that, goes into that point in more detail. Um, but uh, that I feel is it's quite a skillful way of, uh, of talking about that the those worldly attitudes are going in one direction and the eightfold path based on uh, sila samadhi and panya virtue concentration and wisdom is is going in the opposite direction and when the mind is taken up with those worldly concerns about gain and and fame and the praise and so forth then uh, and fearing and resenting criticism loss suffering and and um disrepute and so on, then the the part the spiritual path gets completely obscured, gets gets uh, masked by those worldly concerns. And as he puts it here, the um, 
When they occupy and fill the heart, there'll be no opportunity for walking the path that makes an end of suffering. There's only the world flooding the heart and keeping it in a state of turmoil, anxiety and distress. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. Uh, I was thinking about this concept about letting go and not grasping. Uh, it has the same meaning as um, uh, to use uh, these senses, this sensory world, as uh, tools to transcend them, to, to not... Um, Try to use them it, it in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, again, Lumpur Charles focuses on that that point that it's not transcending the world isn't a matter of of suppressing the senses about sort of closing your your eyes and your ears or, or trying to not experience anything, but rather it's the skillful use of the ex- the the experiential world of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. That's uh, that's the let's say the the way to uh, to approach dhamma practice. It, it's it's not a uh, it's it's not the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching in the physical world that's a problem. It's the the mind's attitude towards it. So you'd often make the distinction between holding and clinging. So that uh, if you if you hold something like you you pick up a book and to read it and then you you put it down then. It, when you're holding it appropriately, then it's it's not a cause of difficulty or stress. It's not a burden. But if you say this is my book and you know, and I'm going to carry it around all the time, and you know, don't don't you dare try and take it away from me, then you're creating dukkha around it. So often that uh, holding the world uh, rather than clinging to it, so that when you pick it up, you can use the material world and uh, the um, aspects of um, People and things and the the sensory uh, the sensory field to to be teaching you know to like as he's doing right here you're talking to a group of people and <laughs> using lots of words coming up with these different uh, ways of explaining he's using the sensory world but with uh, an attitude of, of non grasping not not clinging yes Ajahn, I'm having a, an earworm for the past ten days or so. And that is Dhamma Nudama Patipati. For some reason, this is like an earworm, so it's really uh-huh. very much. And I was wondering if what, I. What, say the word again? Dhamma Nudama Patipati. Dhamma Nudama Patipati. Yeah. In accordance to the Dhamma. Practicing Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma. In accordance with the Dhamma. So I was wondering whether this applies to what you just read and to the end. As a way to understand the reality, the the the, world, the, the experience we are we are, we are, we are in, in regards to, for instance, the eight worldly winds that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. and just understand the removal, as you said the other day, the the removal of the sense of self in everything that we experience. If that would be one way of practicing. Because this earworm, I need to get some more elaboration on it. Well, it's a good question. It's the it's the fourth of the four qualities supportive of stream entry. So uh, the first three, the first three are uh, 
um, uh, Sapurisa Sangseva, drawing close to good people. The second one is uh, Sadhamma Savana, listening to the good Dhamma. The third one is Yoniso Manasikara, wise reflection. And then the fourth one is Dhamma Anudhamma Patipati, or Patipada. And uh, Lumpur Pasanda would often emphasize, he would talk a lot about that fourth quality. And it's particularly significant, I, I would say, I don't know about whether it will cure you of your earworm, <laughs> but uh, it is particularly significant because um, what can easily happen is that we practice Dhamma based on self-view, or based on ambition, or based on, on um, obedience to a system. And so that we we uh, we're trying to, to we're trying to practice, but it's invisibly uh, being structured around. I want to get rid of my problems. I need to get my thinking mind to get to be quiet. I need to get more concentration. I need more insight. I want to become a stream enterer. All those I am's. So it, and and it can seem like we're following the instruction or listening to a dhamma talk or reading a sutta or whatever, and. And it can feel like oh, I'm I'm doing what's prescribed or what's advised, but in, invisibly, in, insidiously, you know that you know that word insidiously, just sort of quietly sneaking in <laughs> the back door, insidiously, um, the whole thing is being uh, sort of uh, uh, influenced by the habits of conceit and self-view. I've got a lot of defilements. I need to practice now to become enlightened in the future. I need to get more concentration. Um, and all of those things that seem on the surface level seem to be, well, yes, <laughs> seems to be what it's encouraged in the Dhamma talks or in the in the suttas that we read and, and so forth. But the, the whole element of I am, I have, uh, I should be, I shouldn't be, that's sort of uh, influencing the picture. So Dhamma Anu Dhamma Patipati, the practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma, is all about... Uh, the exercising of effort and decision-making free of self-view. So at the beginning of this, um, well, I think both of the early part of the retreat in January and then just in the, this, the last few days uh, with this group practice period, I think the first couple of days I was emphasizing that. And so that that's, that is <laughs> really what Dhamma Anu Dhamma Pati Pati is about, that that. that Sama Sankapo, uh, right resolution or right intention, um, and Sama Vayamo, right effort. Uh, that effort, so effort and directionality, doesn't have to have any kind of self-view involved whatsoever. So the, all, all of the aspects of the Eightfold Path, they're all about doing and then about attitudes, but the the way they work most effectively is if they're completely free of of. I and me and mine, they're free of self-view and uh, conceit. So that's what makes them samar in, 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 their, in their essence. Um, uh, what makes them sort of the mundane Eightfold Path is where I am practicing sila, I am developing meditation, I am getting better at my concentration, I could do more of this. So that would be like a mundane, mundane uh, practicing or following of the Eightfold Path. It's 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 influenced by the asavas, by the, the, the outflows and the habits of, of I, me, and mine. But it, the more that there is that dhamma anu dhamma patipati, the practicing dhamma in accordance with dhamma, then that directionality, samasankapo, of a right intention, right resolution, the setting a direction, 
and then right effort, samavayamo in particular, they are based on mindfulness and wisdom, They're rather than I am, I have, I should be, I shouldn't be, and all those that I making and my making. So it's uh, it's the, the in a way the most subtle of those four um, qualities supportive of stream entry, but it's like <laughs> so the kind of the last one on the, li- on the list of many of the many of the Buddha's lists is the most subtle. Um, but it's incredibly important because uh, uh, it's it's quite common for people to be putting great effort with great sincerity for years and years, decades. But as long as effort is being made or, or the practice is being cast in the form of uh, I uh, I. I am practicing mindfulness of breathing. I am getting somewhere in this respect. I'm not getting anywhere in that respect. Uh, it could, all that sincere practice is getting hampered, getting um, distorted by self-view. So it can be very frustrating and very disappointing that you're putting 10, 20, 30, 40 years of, of effort into into practice. But as long as it's me practicing, <laughs> then... It's always going to have that uh, unsatisfying, unliberating effect because the self-view is being fed along the way. So in the experience, it's difficult to avoid the eight worldly winds. It's every day is filled with that, whether it's praise or blame or whatever, whatever. So it's it's a it's windy the, world. <laughs> so it's the understanding of, of it's the removal of that anatta from from in it. Not the removal, the removal of the self-view from how we react or how we understand what is the experience mm-hmm. from the perspective of the eight worldly winds. In this case, that that is part of the interleaving the Dharma in accordance. Yeah, practically, uh, I'm saying. Yeah, in everyday life. And it's also why sila and simplicity are extremely important, because yeah. the. The, the less complicated and emotionally charged our world is, then the easier it is to see that self that selfing around what we perceive in conversations and praises and criticisms and gains and losses and whatnot. The more it's got an emotional charge, the more complicated it is than the, just by the laws of, of physics you know and perception you know it's just harder to spot because there's more stuff going on. The more simple things are. And the and the the, the more um, whole, sort of fulsome the quality of sila is, the more that we're careful about what we say and what we do, and uh, then it keeps the picture as clear as possible and as simple as possible and emotionally un, unloaded as possible, and then it ups the the odds of being able to see those that self creation around those the the worldly dhammas. But good question. So Dhammanu Dhamma Pati Pati. So uh, in uh, in the island, um, uh, in the, there's a, there's four uh, chapters that Ajahn Pasano did on stream entry, and so he he covers that quite a bit in uh, in that. Please do. Yeah, there's a lot in that book. But, uh, okay, so to continue. Thus we. Thus we are taught to develop the path, which is wisdom. The path can be summarized as developing morality to the utmost, developing samadhi to the utmost, and developing wisdom to the utmost. These are the tools and faculties 
for destroying the fiction that is called the world, the path for destroying the worldliness dwelling in the hearts of deluded beings. Whenever attachment to happiness and suffering, to gain and loss, is present in the mind, the world is there. The mind is the world. A worldly being has been born, born of craving. If craving is extinguished, the world is extinguished, because this blind craving is the source of the world. The Eightfold Path and the Eight Worldly Dhammas are a pair. These two ways exist in the same place. It's not as if they're in separate realms. The attachment to happiness, status, praise and gain exists in the mind with the one who knows. But when there is attachment, the one who knows is obscured. So its knowledge is mistaken. And it's dwelling in the world. The world comes to be the mi- the world comes to be in the mind. The one who knows has not yet awakened the Buddha nature, so it cannot remove itself from worldliness. When we train the body, speech and mind in morality, meditation and wisdom, we soon come to see the worldly dhammas buried in the heart. We'll see ourselves clinging to them and how that clinging comes about. If we train and make the mind able, we'll thus see the world and its origins. The Buddha said, O bhikkhus, look upon this world as an ornamented and bejeweled royal chariot by which fools are dazzled and entranced, but which is meaningless to the wise. To see the world, we don't have to go travelling all over Thailand and other countries. We need only to look at this mind immersed in worldliness. Then sitting under a tree, we can see the world. So that um, when he uses the term the, the world, it's, uh, it's, a, it's also part of that seeing in worldly ways. So it's not just the... the um, uh, the the fact of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, but that sense of of investing uh, substantiality and value and meaning in those perceptions. And uh, in this re- respect, um, that the disc- the dialogue between the Buddha and the Deva Rohitasa also comes to mind. I think is very relevant uh, in this respect, where Rohitasa, as a Deva, came to the Buddha, and, and um, uh, it's in the Deva Sangyuta, uh, in the Sangyuta Nikaya, Connected Discourses, and says, you know, in my last lifetime I was a yogi and I had some, some psychic uh, powers and I, could, and I made this resolution, I would walk and keep walking until I reached the end of the world and I could walk across land, I could walk through the sky and I walked and walked and walked and I couldn't get to the end of the world and I died along the way. And then the Buddha says to Rohitasa, uh, well, uh, I declare to you that you can't reach the end of the world by walking but and if you don't reach the end of the world, you won't reach the end of Dukkha. So it's a sort of conundrum, a puzzle that he put to Rohitasa. And then he goes on to explain that it's in this very body, this, uh, this um, fathom-long body, with its thoughts and perceptions, there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So in that expression, uh, then he equates the world, Loka, with uh, with dukkha, with the, with the four noble truths, and and so that uh, the world seen as a substantial and you know, solid uh, other, and in that respect, the end of the world is is compared to or aligned with the ending of dukkha, and that um, the the, uh, the I would say the solution that uh, where the world ends is in this very quality of awareness. This is, that's where the world ends. Uh, the path leading to the end of the, the world is, leading, is 
that quality of awareness that's uh, that which knows the world is where the the world arises where it's known where it, and where it ceases is this very quality of awareness uh, and then uh, yeah we don't have many chariots around nowadays but uh, <laughs> uh, dazzled by uh, ornamented and jeweled vehicles so like a Rolls Royce or a Porsche or a a really good wheelbarrow if you're a gardener. <laughs> we all have our own preferences and uh, yeah, and so on and so forth that we can relate to. Um, worldliness lands in different ways and forms. Um, but um, that seeing how the mind you know, gives value to uh, and and is, is dazzled by the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch and so on, that's the... Um, how the the mind uh, gets lost in the, that the, that kind of worldly thinking, and then when the world is seen as as empty, as sunya, as as insubstantial, as transparent, then the the heart is free from its uh, bondage to those values and to gain and loss, um, praise and criticism, um, rank and uh, uh, fame and disrepute, and so on and so forth. So any thoughts, questions? Okay, to continue. When we determine to practice and develop the path, we try to practice samadhi, to focus and pacify the mind. But the mind does not become focused and peaceful so easily. We don't want it to think, but it keeps on thinking. Really, the mind of an ordinary person is like someone sitting on a nest of red ants. Sitting so close to them, they're going to bite. When we who have worldly dhammas filling our hearts start to practice with our worldly minds the habits of attraction and aversion, elation and depression, distraction and worry, all immediately start to surface. This is quite a natural occurrence for those who have not yet attained the dharma and whose minds are filled with worldliness. We have not yet seen through these habits and are thus not able to resist their power. So, it's just like sitting on an anthill. We're sitting right on their home, so, of course, they will come up and bite us. When they're biting, what should we do? Uh, we have to find some way to destroy them, put down poison, cover them with earth, or set fire to the nest so they'll flee. This is what practice entails, making an effort to combat what torments us. But practitioners don't generally think like this. Whenever they are feeling good about something, they go along with it. If something makes them unhappy, they are affected by that. When they meet with praise and blame and the rest, they react according to habit and pursue them, never quelling them. When that happens, there is the world. People who study a little bit will look at this and say, they just can't do it. It's too hard to let go of these things. That only means that they're afraid to exert the effort. When the mental afflictions occur, the eight worldly dhammas suppress and obscure the Eightfold Path. People can't endure things, so they cannot maintain morality, they can't persevere in meditating to calm the mind. They can't control themselves and endure in order to contemplate the workings of the mind. It's just like the guy sitting on the anthill. He's out of his mind with pain and discomfort from the bites, so there's nothing he's able to focus on or accomplish. Unable to remove the source of his misery, he just remains there, trying to endure somehow. This is how it is. 
The worldly dharmas and the Buddha's path of practice are always going to be antagonistic to each other. When ordinary people try to train the mind and make it tranquil, things that have been residing there will come gushing out. If delusion is allowed to remain in control, the mind is in darkness. But when knowledge is born through perseverance, delusion dissipates and the mind is illumined. Knowledge and delusion occur in the same place. When knowledge is born, delusion cannot stay. When worldliness rules and we cannot find the Eightfold Path, we have to make efforts to practice, practice tranquility and insight meditation. It's necessary to keep at it until we can see the attachment, aversion and confusion that come from contact with the eight worldly dharmas starting to decrease. When they become lighter, we're able to recognize them more clearly and start to remove ourselves from the world which resides within us as these things and our grasping reactions to them. Well, this is a very evocative image. So we don't have many ant, <laughs> don't have many ant hills um, here. We have squirrels, but uh, <laughs> not many ant hills. But I think people get the get the image of uh, yeah. If you sit on an ant hill, then there's going to be a, an effect of that that the ants will bite. So if you haven't ever really worked with your mind very much and you sit down to to meditate, then it's natural that uh, there's going to be a lot of you know, thoughts and ideas and uh, emotions and imagination here running here, there and everywhere, just like the, the biting ants. And so uh, what comes across also in these comments that Lumpur makes is about um, uh, endurance <laughs> and uh, perseverance, patience, and that that recognition that, well, uh, it's it's a big task to undertake to work with the mind. So of course it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take patience. And so that that quality of of uh, endurance, patience, and uh, readiness to to uh, work with the mind that it's not going to just suddenly arrive at peace and clarity uh, uh, all of a sudden in a, in a very short period of time. It's just not going to work that way. And so. Uh, as he says, it's necessary to keep at it until we can see the attachment, aversion, and confusion that come from contact with the eight worldly dhammas starting to decrease. So it's one of those things. It's uh, uh, the shortcut is patience. <laughs> it's the, the, the the quick way is to be ridiculously patient with uh, with your mind, your body, your your memories, your ideas, your emotions, uh, your opinions, and. Uh, with the way the world is, and that, um, and and in that, as I was uh, saying a, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, the, the Buddhist concept of patience is not just gritting your teeth and waiting for something painful to be over, but in, in Buddhist practice, the paramita of patience is to do with letting go of time. You're not you're not waiting for something to be over. It's just an openness to here it is the. It's like the, in this moment, it's exactly this way, not waiting. So you're uh, uh, not just sort of gritting your teeth and counting the minutes till it's all it's all done. That's another kind of dukkha. There's a, there's a strength involved in that. So it's better than just being reactive. But the the patience, which is really the paramita, that which uh, is a transcendent quality that carries the heart to to real freedom and ease, is a letting go of time. It's a not waiting. Um, and a quality of openness and surrender, and so that um, I don't know how many times over the years um, when people are having difficulties dealing with their, their thoughts and feelings and uh, restless 
experiences to say, well, uh, patience is the supreme practice. And uh, that is, uh, in a way, it's the central theme of practice in the forest tradition is the uh, the exercising of patient endurance. And, and then the more that we get a feel for that, then that uh, uh, genuine transformation does occur. If we're always just reacting and, and running away from what's uncomfortable or difficult or we just can't stay with it, then uh, it never really gets processed, it never really gets transcended. Any thoughts, questions, negotiations? <laughs> just how much patience do we need? Okay. One who practices should bear witness as to how much progress is being made on this path. There are only two choices, right view and wrong view, and everything follows from them. The practitioner becomes like two people, meaning the way of the world and the way of Dhamma, struggle within the mind. The development of the path will gradually and steadily harass and kill off the worldly Dhammas until, in the end, the wisdom of right view arises and wrong understanding vanishes. The final result is that the path destroys the afflictions. The two ways continuously contend with each other, all throughout our efforts to practice, and this can continue even when we think we're gaining insight through vipassana, vipassana meditation. It can easily turn into vipassan upakilesa, the defilements of insight. What does this mean? When we develop the path, we make efforts to practice virtue and purify the mind. But whatever good results we get, we can become elated over them and attached to them. This elation is just another form of grasping, and it becomes vipassanu, vipassanu pakilesa, the wisdom, quote-unquote, of the mental afflictions. So, some people will develop a little goodness, and then, and then they become attached to that goodness. When they attain some sort of purity, they become attached to purity. When they attain knowledge, they become attached to knowledge. This clinging to knowledge and purity is vipassanu, infecting the practice. So, when practicing vipassana and gaining some insight, beware of vipassanu, because they can be very similar and you can be misled, unaware of what is taking place. The vital point is that when vipassanu occurs, there will eventually be some suffering as its fruit. If it is truly vipassana, there is no suffering. It is genuinely peaceful, purified of happiness and suffering. So it might sound a little bit esoteric, but uh, the uh, upakilesa means... Uh, so kilesa is defilement, upakilesa is a sort of uh, upper-class <laughs> defilement or a, an elevated defilement. And vipassana upakilesa is like the defilements that come from insight. So when they're listed, they're things like unrelenting energy, uh, unre uh, unre unrelenting, unremitting mindfulness, uh, comprehensive knowledge, um, you know, things that sound quite attractive or interesting. I think, wow, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> and so it's uh, what are our uh, effects of, uh, of meditation, but because of the mind's uh, unskillful grasping of those states, then it, it loses its uh, attunement to... Uh, to the, the people around or the, to the material world, and so things can get really off track. And so these different kinds of 
of meditation illness or meditation um, sort of distorted states that arise um, and one has to be so careful uh, with with respect to those because it can be very seductive very compelling that you know the mind is very very bright you don't need to eat or sleep and it seems like you understand everything and it's there's a lot of energy and so then uh, if it's not uh, carefully guided and and uh, instruction uh, and friendly uh, advice given then people can really get uh, off track and get into into psychotic very uh, distorted states and um, be a very uh, very distressed and uh, difficult mind states that can be hard to to retreat from and uh, so that uh, uh, and Lumpur uses this kind of play on words vipassana and vipassana are sort of <laughs> they sound like each other they they can look like each other but they they're very very different another word that's used in relationship to this is sanya vipalasa which literally means the the distorted grasping of perception so vipalasa means like the wrong holding or wrong grasping the the uh, unskillful holding of sanya or perception and so that uh, again when you have sort of particular visions in meditation or you're hearing voices or getting instructions from disembodied um, uh, beings that are, are telling you to do this and don't do that and um, so on and so forth then it, uh, it can lead to a, a lot of difficulty and, and confusion so um, so Lumpur is particularly pointing to that um, be, uh, being careful about how the mind clings to these kind of these very energized or bright or, or knowledgeable states and it's not as though that they, they're not accurate so that sometimes when these kind of someone's got into one of these vipassana um, pakilesa kind, kind of states that they can have genuine psychic powers or they can sort of read people's minds or they they, uh, they really don't need to <laughs> to, to sleep there. and uh, they have a lot of, of energy and it can feel like they they really understand everything and and there can be well, uh, accurate uh, impressions that they pick up about what somebody's thinking, or they're feeling, or what's or, or what's going on in a remote place, so then that that's a, in a way the accuracy of those perceptions. Then say, well, I'm, you know, I, I, <laughs> this confirms the fact that I really am an arahant, or I really am enlightened, or I have got these great powers because I was uh, correct in the in what I, I read that person was thinking, or I predicted this event, or I I knew what was going on uh, out of sight. And so then that, that kind of um, uh, uh, perception feeds into that process of therefore I must be fully enlightened, I must be uh, the, the next Buddha or whatever. And uh, you know, if it can be that one has those meditation effects and they're kept in, in balance, um, but um, it, it does take a lot of good spiritual friendship and, and close care to... to <coughs> To not get drawn into that. Uh, many years ago, I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier on in the readings, but um, when we were, used to have um, the meditation class, the Saturday afternoon meditation classes were in the uh, old meditation room, which was um, <laughs> hard to describe. So where the the uh, edge of the the cloister is out beyond um, this uh, this building, there was a it was a a partner building to the 
uh, what's now the the library and the the the, uh, the public uh, toilets there. There was another building in the, in the same kind of orientation, and we had was a, a meditation room that we used there. Saturday afternoon classes, and at the at the end of one of the Saturday afternoons, I was sitting chatting with one of the people who'd been there. Everyone else had had taken off, and we were sort of talking about his. Uh, his meditation and how he enjoyed the classes, and he kept looking over my shoulder, and I was looking around me and I'm thinking, is he seeing? And and uh, the the Dhamma hall was behind us, and uh, and uh, Lumpur Sumedha had his rooms at the end of that. So oh, maybe he's looking at Lumpur Sumedha through the window, and he's. And, and, but then you know, the the lights were off, and Lumpur didn't seem to be there. So after this happened two or three times, I said, I said, what are you looking at? And he said, do you really want to know? And I said, well. Yeah, I said, um, well, Sariputra and Mogalana are having a conversation about my meditation practice. <laughs> and so I'm just trying to ignore them and listen to what, what we're, we're, we're saying with each other. Oh, right. <laughs> and uh, so at that time, he was able to recognize, I don't think Sariputra and Mogalana are really there, but there's this very distinct impression that they're having this conversation about my, my mind states. And um, I'm just trying to ignore them and have... Com- you know the conversation with you, who I do know, is sitting here, and so, um, so that he w- had these these very um, uh, s- you know strong perceptions, and he could keep it sort of in 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 check or keep it in perspective, um, but uh, then uh, later on when he got more, uh, he came on retreat and and was. Uh, uh, Spent more more uh, more time in, in silence and keeping the uh, the, um, the retreat routine. Then things got a lot more difficult in the ordinary everyday circumstances uh, and, and interaction. Then it was he was quite workable, but with um, more time on con- uh, for silence and concentration, then it uh, it got very problematic for him. But I was impressed with how how balanced he was in the fact of you know, Sariputra Mogalana having a conversation. <laughs> Just, I'm trying to ignore them. Excuse me. You know. And that, uh, but he he could tell that uh, the um, the the mind was was conjuring up these images and that it was not particularly trustworthy or valuable or meaningful, but they were there. So he was learned how to to farm his attention in that way. But uh, it was it was a challenge for him. He had a lot of these uh, visionary uh, states of one kind or another. Any thoughts, questions? Yes. How to tell if this is schizophrenia? How to tell if people are actually suffering for this kind of condition mm-hmm. instead of a real experience? Thinking the same. Yes. Well, it's it's tricky. It's tricky, and so um, you, know, you you talk together, and then you you. Uh, do what you can to to help someone, but if it's if it becomes clear or it looks likely that no, they they they're having some schizophrenic states and and that uh, that is something that needs attention um, from medical professionals, then you would encourage them to to head in that direction. But uh, yeah, we don't you don't put yourself in a position of being a, a medical practitioner or a psychiatrist as a as a in the role of dhamma teaching but you leave, and it's up to individuals people to make their own choices but if you get that um those impressions 
then uh, and, and a sense of whether someone can really keep it in balance or not then you, you give what guidance you can and people make their own choices based on that it's not always easy because um, sometimes people feel that uh, they, they're coming to the monastery and they want to work with what they're experiencing through meditation because they don't want to be classified as, as being schizophrenic or being given medication and, and such like that they they want to try and work with it uh, just through the the agency of the mind rather than using chemicals or such like so uh, it, it's a balancing act yes i recently read uh, a Dund, uh biography mm -hmm. and he has this too a story not himself he has a friend who uh, an old monk meditated very well and one day that person, you know, had this vipassana vagilate, and so he thought, oh, he had to go and tell Rumpudun and preach to him mm -hmm. at his, his in temple. So he came with uh, his uh, umbrella, but the uh, sleepy umbrella, cloth, 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 and then uh, talking all night. You know, Rumpudun was very patient, uh, silently listened, and everyone come, come, back to listen. Not in everyone, everyone uh, mm -hmm. to listen to him, and uh, all night long, they uh, no, he could not sleep. Finally, he couldn't uh, say like, "Satnalok, bye, bye, bye." Satnalok, this is a very rude uh, word, like a what coming from the hill, like mm -hmm. the be beast, mm -hmm. hail from hell, mm -hmm. and this very rude word. Mm -hmm. One Long Pudun said that he was mad, and so he was talking like, I am enlightened, you call me this? These people are, you know, very stupid. They don't want to listen to Dhamma. Mm -hmm. So he left. And because he was so mad, he instead of grabbing his cloth, he grabbed and uh, bloom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and carried the broom. I think he's got and went back uh, to his yeah. Uh, temple. Yeah, that uh, the Cha tells us a story that he was when uh, in the early days of Wat Pong he was walking around the monastery and the, he heard this. Um, it sounded like somebody was giving a dhamma talk and thought, oh, that's interesting. And that's out amongst the kutis and uh, he went around and uh, and it was um, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the junior monks. Um, that was sitting by himself at his kuti, just giving a dhamma talk to the night, and he said, "Ah, oh, just I'm filled with the dhamma. I've just got to, I've got to proclaim, you know." And, and it's like, "Well, who's listening?" Well, I don't know. I don't really care, you know. I don't, I've got to, I have to, I have to let the world know. And uh, so, and then so Lumpur Chao talks about the other, okay, how to help someone in that kind of a state to calm down. But uh, yeah, it, it can happen, and uh, it's. You, you can't really predict everyone is unique so exactly how you handle a situation best way of working with it it's uh, you just have to take in to, uh, as many of the, of the factors as possible and weigh up what to do with the situation so basically scold him make him got so angry and that uh, Aram, you know mm -hmm. the feeling of angry chopped him and he kind of like went back and realized there was another Ajahn Chah did a similar thing with someone, a monk who came and declared that he was an anagami mm -hmm. 
and uh, and Ajahn Chah said, "Oh, uh, um, that's interesting. We use the word anagami. We uh, we use anagami in, in my village. That means mangy dog." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, this uh, Anagami was was very upset, and then he went. He felt, you know, how, how dare you? You're so rude. You know, this is insulting. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't believe that they use the Anagami meaning mangy dog. Uh, you know, that, uh, and uh, stomped off. And and so then Lumpur Chah's comment was, oh, an angry Anagami. That's the first. <laughs> <laughs> so you you have to so weigh things up whether it's just. Someone that you're close to that has been sort of um, uh, receiving instruction as part of a community, or whether it's someone who just shows up. You know, uh, living here at Amravati, I, I've had uh, someone uh, a few years ago showed up and said, um, uh, "Ajahn Chah came to me last night, and he, and he and he told me that you have to read these two pages of this Dhamma book. These are particularly for you. I've outlined them." He said, "These that he told me that." I have to bring this book of his teachings, and he wants you to read these two pages. Okay, I've you know, never met this person before, and she'd been told by these voices to come to Amravati, and that, uh, and, hit, and she had to go to the get this particular book and uh, and highlight these particular pages. And it was just Ajahn Chah. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, as it were. So, I, and I read the pages, and it was like. Lumpur talking about mindfulness of breathing. <laughs> okay, it's a very kind of uh, straightforward instruction about mindfulness of breathing. Okay, well, have a good day. <laughs> but uh, her voices, you know, and she talked about her, her life and she's just been following these guidance from these inner voices telling her to go places and do things and go stand on this street corner, or go to this bench by the canal and wait, someone will come along. And and so she'd been told, you have to come to Amravati and then there's this book and these, uh, you have to talk, you know, talk to the abbot and uh, he has to read these pages, 188, 189. So, you know, you, uh, I hadn't met that person before so I didn't feel I had any sort of great responsibility but uh, I thought, well, um, so I, I tried to make some input into the effect of, well, are you sure that the voices you hear are completely reliable? You know, or uh, uh, you know, I would advise you being careful because if if these things can arise, they can say all sorts of things that are not necessarily dependable or helpful. So be careful. But someone's just showing up out of the blue, and they have, you don't really have a close relationship or connection with them. So you know, there's only so much you can put into the mix and then let go okay so seven o'clock has come around so let's uh, leave it there for today